Let's hear God's word from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, beginning with verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 20 of Isaiah chapter 1. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we look to you now to help us, to open our hearts, to receive from your word what it contains for us. Father, it's very easy to listen and to apply to other people whatever is uncomfortable. But Lord, we pray that you would keep us from that mistake today. Help us to see how this relates to us as individuals, as a congregation, and then, yes, as members of a broader society. But Lord, may we never outsource our guilt, our responsibility to other people. Help us instead to take responsibility, to welcome accountability. And, oh, Lord, help us to cease to do evil and to truly learn to do good. In Jesus' name and for his sake, we ask these things. Amen. Isaiah started his prophecy by inviting heaven and earth to witness, to bear record as Moses had called them to do in Deuteronomy 32. So verse 2 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And then the Lord sets out his complaint against his disobedient and rebellious children, or perhaps I should say against his ungrateful and rebellious children, because as we saw last time, ingratitude was really the root of then their further disobedience. Now here the Lord recurs to those phrases, hear 
and give ear in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He set out a general complaint against his people in the hearing of heaven and earth. Now he's going to address them directly. And what heaven and earth are supposed to do is the same thing that the people also are supposed to do. They are supposed to hear and give ear. Now, there's another connection between these two sections. One is they had been told that they'd been spared from judgment. Had it not been for the Lord's mercies, had it not been for the Lord's unexpected mercies preserving them from judgment, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, you remember Sodom and Gomorrah were very thoroughly, very completely overthrown and destroyed. Now, they're called Sodom and Gomorrah. But the ground of that, the reason for that has changed a little bit. Previously, it was said, you would have been exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah if God hadn't preserved a small remnant. In other words, judgment came, and yet it wasn't as devastating as it could have been because God preserved some of them. Well, why did judgment to that degree come? Because they were so similar to Sodom and Gomorrah in their behavior. In other words, there would have been nothing wrong in God judging them as thoroughly as he did Sodom and Gomorrah, but he was merciful. He left a remnant. Now, you'll notice there that the word of the Lord is directed to the rulers of Sodom and also to the people of Gomorrah. Why distinguish them if you're going to address both? Well, rulers, because of their position, have a greater responsibility. But that greater responsibility doesn't let the people off the hook. So the higher ranking you are, yes, the more accountable, the more you have to give an account for everything you did. But you can't say, well, I'm so low-ranking that my sin doesn't even matter. Neither the privileges of rank nor the ability to be ignored of not having any rank get you off the hook when it comes to your relationship to God. Now, what is the basic complaint that God is making here? He's already said in the witness of heaven and earth that the people are ungrateful and disobedient. But now he's going to narrow down a little bit. He's going to focus more, and he's going to explode a defense that they might be inclined to mount on their own behalf. He's going to show that what they could say in self-justification does not work. Now, in saying, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah, He's already revealed his analysis of their character. What kind of people are they? Well, they're pretty terrible people. That's what it means when you're compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah stand as the characteristic cities that were just overrun by wickedness. So when he says this to them, that's going to make some people mad. You know, for Isaiah to say that to the people of Judah, they're not going to appreciate that. Well, Isaiah did it anyway. 
because God told him to. But what would they say in their own defense? Well, you can see that in what the Lord criticizes. They would say, how can you say that we're like Sodom and Gomorrah? Look at how faithfully we come to the temple and walk in its courts. Look at the multitude of the sacrifices that we bring. We're bringing many animals. We're bringing high-quality animals. We're bringing the fat of fed cattle to you. We're gathering routinely. We bring incense. We're there on the new moon. We're there on the Sabbaths. We're there at the other stated assemblies. We spread out our hands in prayer. How can you compare us to Sodom and to Gomorrah. We're so religious. We're so pious. We're so devout. And yet, somehow, God and Isaiah don't seem to be impressed by that, do they? God raises the question, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? Their worship didn't make anything better. Their worship was not helping their case. God had had enough. And in fact, he's even stronger than that. He says, my soul hates your new moons and your appointed feasts. They're a trouble to me. This isn't helping your case. This is getting on my nerves. I'm tired of putting up with it. Well, what was the the problem? Well, the problem was that the worship was being handled as just a mechanical religious ritual. We go through the motions, we do the thing, and then God is happy with us. Well, God says that that's repulsive. In terms of what you bring to worship, your character is more important than your offering. Now, don't misunderstand. We need to be involved in worship. That needs to be part of what we do. But you can't use worship. You can't use religious activities as an excuse for sin. That becomes very clear that this is what they were doing when it says in verse 15, when you spread out your hands, which is an expression for prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear why. Your hands are full of blood. You see, what was happening is they were basically taking the attitude, we can live as we please, and then as long as we do the religious rituals, we're still okay. God is still on our side. Another way to describe that would be to say that they're divorcing religion and righteousness. They've got their devotion, and that's one thing, and then they've got their ethics, and that's a completely different thing. And that is not uncommon. That is not unique to the people of Judah in the time of Isaiah. That is something that has happened a lot. How many unrighteous people are also religious? Quite a few. Quite a few. This is a a pressing danger. This is absolutely something that can happen here. You have people in there like, well, I know I didn't really behave very well this week, you know. Maybe I wasn't honest. Maybe I cheated a little bit. Maybe I told some lies. Maybe I was self-indulgent. But, 
you know, I did do my devotions, and then I'm going to go to church on Sunday. You know, I'll add a few dollars to what I put in the offering plate, and I'm sure it will be fine. No, it won't. Not if that's your attitude, it won't be. God does not tolerate the separation of religion from righteousness. Now, sometimes people read what's here in the book of Isaiah, and they say, oh, so God doesn't care about religious ritual at all. The only thing that matters is that I be a good person. Well, that's not exactly accurate either. Isaiah is speaking this way not because going to the temple and bringing sacrifices was bad. Just go back to Exodus. Go back to Leviticus. God told them to do these things. The problem was not being devout. The problem was not thinking about God. The problem was not having a schedule on which to come and worship God. That's not the issue. The issue is that they did all of that without righteousness. So if you think, well, I'm just going to be a good person and otherwise I don't have to think about God. Okay, that's called impiety. It's also a sin. Another word for it is practical atheism. You act as though God did not exist. There's other parts of the Bible that speak against that. That's not Isaiah's concern here. Isaiah's concern here is people who say, well, because I do the religious rituals, therefore my unrighteousness doesn't matter. He's dealing with hypocrites, in other words. Now, hypocrisy is never acceptable to God. When they come, and yes, they sacrifice, yes, they worship, but their doings are evil in God's eyes. They don't seek justice. They support the oppressor. They oppress the fatherless. They take advantage of the widow. When that's their behavior, their worship has no value. In fact, we could even put it more strongly. Their worship has a negative value. And God puts it both ways. He asks the question, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? And it's clear that the expected response is nothing. This is not doing any good. And then he puts it even more strongly. My soul hates your new moons and your appointed feasts. They're a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. So we can... Make the statement this way. We can try to summarize what we've seen so far. Where people are religious without a concern for righteousness, even their practice of religion becomes just more unrighteousness. In other words, when you think that you can buy God off by what you put in the offering plate or how you help out at church or whatever it is, doing your devotions, That's not helping. That's actually making your situation worse. God is interested in the sacrifices of a broken and a contrite heart. God is interested in our character. God is concerned that we would do the right thing. You maybe have known somebody like this. Maybe... This describes you, or maybe this described you in the past. You could spread out your hands in prayer. 
And then you could turn around and you could yell at your wife or your husband. You could come to church. And once you got out of church, you could forget about God for the rest of the week. You could be very visible, very prominent when there was some activity to take part in. But then you could be just as prominent in underhanded wheeling and dealing. This is not a joke. God says that in that case, our religious activities provoke him more. So no amount of display piety is going to do you any good until your service of God changes who you are at home when only the family sees you, until your relationship to God has an impact on how you run your business, until your relationship with God makes you a good neighbor. Religious service is only adding fuel to the fire of your condemnation. Now, I don't say that so that people will stop coming to church. I don't say that so people will stop reading their Bibles or so that people will stop praying. That's not the solution. That's not the solution that Isaiah envisions. But we need to be sure that we are getting the depth of this. God says, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. There's so many people in the United States who will say, well, I'm praying for you. I'm praying about this and that. Anytime there's a disaster, thoughts and prayers go up. Politicians ask us to pray about this, that, or the other thing. Politicians have their prayer breakfasts. The rulers of Sodom go to prayer breakfasts. That's what Isaiah is saying. And in one sense, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that there's an acknowledgement of dependence on God in any form. It's been said that hypocrisy is the tribute that vice pays to virtue, and so it's nice to have some kind of tribute paid to virtue, even in that hypocritical form. But God is not deceived. God is not taken in by that. When, and I'm not talking about individual believers. I'm not talking about faithful congregations. But when American society stretches up its hands to God in prayer, Do those words, your hands are full of blood, not also apply to us? For how many years was a Supreme Court decision used to prevent states from restricting abortion? Well, finally that got struck down. And then there were ballot initiatives about restricting abortions. As far as my information goes, all of those initiatives were defeated. What does that say about the blood guilt that is on our hands collectively as a nation. In many places in the United States, abortion is less restrictive than it is in Europe. We tend to look at Europe as being in the vanguard of wickedness. Not on this front. On this front, at least in many 
localities in the United States were actually worse. And that is one example. That's one example of how our hands are full of blood. It's in some ways the most horrifying example because no argument can be made that that blood isn't innocent. No argument can be made that we're justified in shedding that blood. But think about all the other blood that's also shed. Abortion may be the worst of our national crimes against the sixth commandment, but it's not the only one. There's a lot of others. Why should God listen to us when we raise up our hands to him? Oh, this word of Isaiah to Judah is very applicable to us also. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. How much reproach do we deserve? I don't have enough words to describe that. That means that if we're not to be involved in the guiltiness of our nation, of our society, that means that we absolutely have to be out of step with what prevails. We have to be different. We have to be weird because normal is unrighteousness with a very thin veil of religious hypocrisy. And that thin veil is not helping. Can we apply these words to ourselves? How could we not? Open your eyes. Look around. This message from Isaiah, it may be directed to the rulers of Sodom and to the people of Gomorrah, but oh, we fit the bill. We need to hear this too. What is really called for then is not do more religious ritual. Now, Isaiah's not saying don't go to the temple, don't offer sacrifices, but he's calling for something deeper. He's calling for something harder. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. What is that? It's change. Things cannot continue the way they are. Something needs to be different. And he breaks that down a little bit more. There needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be a purity of heart where these disreputable things don't bubble up from us. In that sense, you could say we ought to live in a world where there's no need for laws against abortion because nobody would seek one out. And if somebody did seek one out, nobody would help them to get it. There shouldn't need to be a law against abortion. If our hearts were right, you wouldn't have to have a law against it. But look around. And again, that's just one example. That needs to change. But it's not just something changing on the inside. There's also practical steps to take. Cease to do evil. What are you doing that's wrong? Stop it, says the Bible. Just cut it out. Bring it to an end. Don't think you need some long, convoluted 12-step process. Stop. End it. And in its place, learn to do good. Here's a whole new mindset. Here's a whole new approach. 
And what does that look like? That looks like seeking justice. That looks like defending the fatherless. That looks like rebuking the oppressor. That looks like pleading for the widow. That looks, in other words, like justice and mercy or kindness to those whom we can help. It means no more selfishness. It means no more taking advantage of the weak. Cease to do evil and learn to do good. That is still God's call for us. Now, you might think, well, I'm not one of the people of Gomorrah. I understand. I don't like to hear that directed to me either. But is there nothing where we need to cease to do evil and learn to do good? Have we reformed as thoroughly as we possibly can? Is our righteousness complete? Are our hearts clean? Are they all the way clean? You know the answer to that. And of course, we do fit into a broader society. We are part of this church. We're part of this denomination. We're part of this county and state and nation. Here we are. So even if in your own life, you do, by and large, prevailingly live in contrast to how people live in our society, that's wonderful. Good for you. Keep it up. But we still need to lament what is going on around us. We still need to oppose it to the degree and in the measure that we can. There's still work to be done. Now, this is a hard passage. This is challenging. This really gets in under our skin. But there's also a lot of mercy here. There's already mercy that's been exhibited in the fact that though they are like Sodom and Gomorrah, yet their judgment was not so severe. God preserved some of them. There's mercy in the basic fact that God is talking to them. You remember, God was not unjust with Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent a couple of angels to investigate, and what they found warranted Sodom and Gomorrah's complete destruction. But you know what didn't happen was God did not speak to Sodom and Gomorrah and tell them, repent. But God does do that for these people. God does do that for us. And there is mercy we do not deserve. I mean, by definition. But when our hands are full of blood, why would we expect God to speak to us and tell us? There is mercy. There is forgiveness to be found. Now, there is repentance to be undergone. You can't just say, well, you know, God will forgive me as I continue in sin. People sometimes have That attitude, there was a cartel hitman who would go to confession and would ask for God's forgiveness before he went out on a job so that if he died while he was carrying out his hits, it would be okay. He would go to heaven. That's not how this works. You can't preemptively ask forgiveness for something you're planning to do. That's not repentance. But there is mercy for those who repent. After this tremendous indictment, after God tells them that their religious rituals make him sick because they engage in it with such unrighteousness of life and behavior, even then, he says, he gives this conclusion to this trial. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Lord willing, we'll return to that next time we're in the book of Isaiah. But for today, 
If the Lord has convinced you of the sinfulness of this nation or of your own personal sinfulness, that's not the end. There is a call for repentance, and there's a gracious promise attached to that. The Lord forgives those who repent, no matter how bad it has been, no matter how bad it was until the moment you walked into church this morning. There is forgiveness for those who repent. Turn to Christ. That's the only source of mercy, and that is a mercy we all need. Amen.